Welcome to Startup. Before I met Arlen Hamilton, the words venture capital conjured up a pretty specific image. White guys driving Teslas through Palo Alto. And that's not so far off. The world of VC is overwhelmingly white, wealthy, and male. In pretty much every possible way, Arlen stands out. But this is the world Arlen chose to break into. I wondered how long she's been willing, even relished being an outsider. Turns out, since she was a kid. I was eccentric. I wore six watches in the third grade and they were all to a different time zone. Because I was just like obsessed with the fact that people in other places had a different, like it was nighttime somewhere else. Like that was crazy to me. So the Hawaii one had like palm trees on it. And then there's ones across the world. So three on each wrist. Three on each wrist, yeah. I would not take back the six watches, no matter how much people uh, didn't understand me. I really, that was, that was not for um, fashion. I wanted to be connected to people that were not in front of me. At the time, I thought, oh, that is so Arlen. The way her horizons have always been so much bigger than whatever was directly in front of her. But also, how stressful. Six time zones is a lot to keep track of. All those millions of people going to sleep or eating lunch or waking up. As an adult, Arlen kept scrupulous track of her own time. If a call was scheduled for 3 p.m., she was ready at 2.59. She didn't like surprises. She needed to be on top of what time things were happening, who was going to be there, what she could expect. Arlen liked being in control. The problem is, as the end of the year approached, some very big things were out of her control. The biggest one is that her mom needed surgery. She had cancer. I knew I needed to ask Arlen about this, but I also knew this was a really sensitive topic, so I was careful. Your mom is sick? You know what? I think what I want to do is call my mom, because I'm not going to get too far into this without asking her if it's okay. Arlen pulled out her phone and walked out of the room. She needed to run this line of questioning by her mom. Hello? Hey. Hey, I have to ask you a quick question. A few minutes later, she was back. Okay. She said I can talk to you about it briefly. But there were terms. She said 100%, and I'm saying this to you as well, she does not want to be contacted about this. If you bring this up Uh to her at all, even nicely, because I know you're very nice, it's done. We're done. Got it. Uh, So I know this is everything about her current medical situation. That's correct. There is a chance she could bring it up. Do not bring it up. I am not kidding when I say it. Like, not even, because you're very good. So don't be good with her on this. Arlen had always taken care of her mom. As an adult, she paid for her mom's health insurance. This was a point of pride. When she'd been a kid, the whole family avoided doctors. They had no health insurance. So why find out something's wrong if you can't afford to do anything about it? So having money now, this was huge for Arlen. But all the money in the world couldn't guarantee that her mom would be okay. And right now, there were so many other things to focus on. At Backstage Capital, a big investment had just come in, the biggest one Arlen had ever received. And she and her investment partner, Christy Pitts, were celebrating. Woo! Woo! Frappuccino party! (laughs) So half of me, I'm super excited, and the other half is like, okay, let's go. (laughs) I know. The money came just in time. All of a sudden, the Backstage bank account was transformed. I look at this balance and it's $500,000 that had been zero, which is what I'm used to seeing. 
it's, we get to begin, we get to start. That half million dollars would start a whole new company, Backstage Studio. The studio would be sort of like an incubator for startups with a focus on underrepresented founders. With $500,000, Arlen could take most of the Backstage Capital staff and put them on the payroll of the brand new Backstage Studio. This was a simple solution to her most pressing problem, paying employees. And there was something else, a second big chunk of money. Arlen had been hunting down a different business deal, and it seemed like it was just about to come through. So one more thing that's really cool, and hopefully it happens. Arlen got on a conference call with her staff. This new deal had to do with a group called AngelList, which, among other things, is a place for startups to raise money online. So this is confidential, but um, it'll be it'll come out pretty soon. So they're, what they're basically doing is putting together like two and a half million dollars to put 500K into a few funds on their site that are led by underrepresented emerging managers like myself and Christy. There are four that have been chosen out of the ones they've been talking to, and we are the number one on the list. Arlen explained that this money was coming from a few different venture funds organized through the AngelList platform. It would be half a million dollars that Backstage could use to invest in more startups. Arlen had been working toward this for months because she already had 20 companies she wanted to invest in. She had told them they were in what she called a queue. The queue was another of Arlen's hacks, a way to engage with companies she was excited about, even when she didn't have the money yet to invest in them. Some of these companies had been waiting for months, and now she could finally tell them that money was on the way. A week and a half later, the whole backstage capital team was getting together in Santa Monica. It's printing! Christy was futzing with the computer. Does anybody want a copy of the agenda? Please say yes. yes. One, two, three, four, five, six. The mood was festive, inaugural. They were here to talk about studio. Almost everyone was wearing their purple backstage capital t-shirts. A woman named Amrit wore a matching purple rhinestone necklace. This new company, Backstage Studio, and the paychecks of pretty much everyone at this table were being funded by an investor from Portland, Oregon, named Holly Laval. Arlen had never even met her. Holly believed so much in what Arlen was doing with underrepresented founders that she had given her half a million dollars, sight unseen. But that was about to change, because the mysterious Holly was planning to make an appearance later in the day. During a break at a restaurant across the street, I pulled Arlen aside. What do you think she's going to be like? Like, do you have a sense of what her personality is, what she looks like? What she... Uh, I know that she's blonde. I've seen pictures. I know that, that she's also Caucasian. Um, she seems very, like, friendly to people, but also probably, like, um, a homecoming queen. That's what I get. I could be wrong. We'll see. <laughs> we'll definitely see. When Arlen and Christy and I got back from lunch, Holly and her husband, Zach, were waiting in the lobby. Oh, wow. so great to meet you. So great to see you. This is my husband, yeah, Zach. Yeah, nice to meet you. Hey, Zach, how are you doing, Arlen? Holly did look like a former homecoming queen. Early 40s, long blonde hair, French manicure, Kate Spade purse. Arlen had reserved a room to meet with Holly, Zach, and Christy. They didn't want me in there. And then the Lavaus had a flight to catch. But it was really important to Arlen that Holly meet her staff. She was proud of them. So she rushed everyone down to the lobby to catch Holly before she took off. Hi, I'm Kaziah. Kaziah, nice to meet you. Oh, no, no, sorry for that. Emirate. Nice to meet you. I'm Holly. 
Holly made a polite joke about being quizzed on people's names. And then, with a smile and a wave, she was off. Take care. Later, Arlen told me what she and Holly had talked about during that meeting. Holly told her she was already getting a return on her investment. Just having Arlen and her staffers in a room together, strategizing about ways to support underrepresented founders, that counted as a return, too. She didn't need money to feel like she'd invested in the right place. That night, I stayed at an Airbnb near Arlen's apartment in West Hollywood. The plan was that she'd pick me up on the way to the airport, and we'd fly back to San Francisco together. But when I woke up, there was a message from Arlen. Let's meet at the airport. You can ride with me another time. A couple minutes later, she sent me another text. She was throwing me a bone. I definitely cried this morning, so you can ask me about that at the airport, if you like. It's true. Arlen never cried with me. She didn't do a ton of emoting at all, really, which had become kind of a running joke between us. I was always asking Arlen these how-does-that-feel questions, and she'd give me some flat, pragmatic answer, as if nothing ever rattled her. But this morning, something clearly had. I got to the airport a little after nine. By the time I got to the gate, Arlen was already there. She wasn't crying anymore. She seemed just generally kind of depleted. So, um, I don't know where to start. <laughs> I don't know what to... Uh, do you want to know about my morning? Is that... The yeah, thing? what happened this morning? Um, so... I could tell right away that it was bad news. The $500,000 Arlen thought was coming through AngelList wasn't happening after all, which meant now she couldn't invest in the Q companies. Arlen had thought she had this under control, and now, suddenly, she didn't. It had happened. They said it. I'll tell you what they said that made me feel confident. We are going to be doing 500K and to several managers, starting with four, and you are one of the four. And this will happen at the beginning of January. I believe that. And so now what they're saying is, after some silence, some kind of shady silence, in my opinion, is that I was mistaken, that they did not mean to imply that. I can read you the emails. They said they didn't mean to imply that I, I was getting it. They meant to imply that I was in line, that I was up for it, that I was still a guest. Later, we got in touch with AngelList for their side of all of this. They said they weren't sure how their and Arlen's expectations became mismatched, but they felt like they'd been clear. From Arlen's perspective, she had been wronged. She and I took our seats on the plane. And the frustration with AngelList just kept spooling out of her. I mean, that was, that was, it was, it was set up. You know, it was always, we're aiming towards this. And then when we had it, it was, okay, it is, it's confirmed. We're going to do it in January. We didn't know the date. Verbal commitments fall through all the time in VC. And Arlen knew that. Usually she waited until she had something in writing. But in this case, she felt like she'd been given a firm yes. She was so sure she'd sent out triumphant emails about it. She told the other investors in her fund that a big new investment was imminent. Now she had to write everyone and say it wasn't happening. And if she did that, maybe someone would step up to help. If you've spent 35 years just doing it yourself, and then and and and, and there not being that much help, you know, and then all of a sudden it's like, I don't know. So I'm just thinking about it. I don't have an answer yet. What are the consequences if you tell people now, like, here's where I'm at right now? What worries you about doing that? It's just that you, you don't go to the well so often. If I waited like two or three days, maybe a solution would happen because sometimes that happens. And I wouldn't have had to, like, what if there's something else I need help with later down the line? I just don't feel like I can go back to the same people over and over again. I don't feel right about that. And I also, 
It's not their responsibility. It's mine. This is not how Arlen wanted to raise money, because now she was in a pinch. This came uncomfortably close to asking for help. I don't want to just push that panic button anytime I feel panicked, <laughs> because if I did, I'd be pushing that button a lot. Do take care when opening those overhead bins, and welcome to San Francisco. The big event of the day was going to be a taping for a video podcast hosted by a well-known venture capitalist named Jason Calacanis. This was a big platform. Arlen knew that whatever she said on Calacanis's podcast was going to make the rounds. Other VCs would hear it. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Angel, the podcast, where we talk to angel investors who are investing in the next crop of great startups. My guest today is Arlen Hamilton, and she is with Backstage Capital. The interview begins, and not even 10 minutes into it, what does Jason Calacanis bring up but AngelList? It's funny that you ask, Jason. Um, That um, this is a very pregnant um. It's the sound of Arlen making a calculation. She had a couple of options here. She could do the politic thing, decide not to burn bridges, resolve this misunderstanding in private. Or she could say how she really felt, which is what she did. Angelist. Yeah. Good for some people, not so good for others. Okay. I am others. Got it. Do you use it ever? Has it worked? I tried. (laughs) Didn't work. I tried, Jason. But man, they, they really screwed me over. Really? Yeah. Yeah. In a big way. It was official. Arlen was taking her beef with Angelist public. She already had a reputation for this kind of thing, mostly Twitter spats, sometimes with big players in the world of VC. But now Arlen was burning the bridge to a well-connected Silicon Valley institution, a conduit to millions of dollars. And she knew that, but she didn't seem to care. I got the sense this wasn't even about Angelist anymore. Angelist was the last straw. As we drove through San Francisco, Arlen was beginning to sound disillusioned with the whole world of venture capital in general. What do you mean you're, like, you're, you're, you're not so sure about this VC part? Like, uh, the venture capital world is not a very inviting place. I didn't think it was going to be a, a, like a, like a camp or something where everybody summer was camp. hugging. Yeah, summer camp. But it's, it, it kind of sucks here. And, um, I think that there are a lot of people who would, uh, who have been here for a long time who would be very happy if I got frustrated enough to leave. Mm, I don't know. I'm, I'm so, so much more jaded than I was before. Before, when Arlen looked at problems in venture capital, the way it ignored minority founders, missed out on so many markets, this used to animate her. It got her fired up because she saw these problems as opportunity for herself. That's what had brought her to Silicon Valley. That's why she slept at the airport. But now, Arlen didn't sound fired up anymore. Like, I just see these guys that are just in their their offices that they have these 100, 200, 500 million dollar funds, and they're just sitting there wielding this fake power they think they have. And all that happens while, like, I have to beg for $25,000 at a time. It's, uh, it's tough. It's sometimes it's really tough. Just two days later, Arlen's mom, Mrs. Sims, went to the hospital for her cancer surgery. Arlen flew to Houston to be there with her. She didn't want her mom to be alone at any point, so she had also flown in her mom's sisters and Arlen's brother to keep Mrs. Sims company. 
The night of the surgery, Arlen stayed at the hospital. The next morning, she and her brother Alfred were waiting to find out when their mom would be released. Arlen sounded exhausted. I don't know, like six or seven hours. Because I don't know, she may be leaving in like two hours. I told her to call me. This whole situation was just a lot. Whenever Arlen wasn't with her mom in the hospital, she was back in her hotel room. She had to figure out how to get money to the Q companies as quickly as possible. It's really important that I don't freak out right now. (laughs) Because that's when I'll start making mistakes and making, like, burning bridges and not being very strategic. So I'm trying to be as... I'm trying to look at this like it's a little bit of a gift that it's happening right now because I just spent the last 48 hours looking my mother's mortality in, in the face, you know? So it's, it helps to put things into perspective. When Mrs. Sims was discharged, Arlen sent her other family members home. She moved her mom to a hotel in downtown Houston, and Arlen got a room right across the hall so she could keep an eye on her. And after a while, she sent me a text. She said her mom was feeling better, and that if I wanted to, I could finally meet her. A week later, I was on a plane to Houston. After the break, I finally meet Mrs. Sims. When Arlen was growing up, she and her mom thought of themselves as Thelma and Louise. They watched all the same TV shows, General Hospital, Friends. Arlen would tease her mom about the movie stars Mrs. Sims loved, Sandra Bullock, Jennifer Aniston. Mrs. Sims referred to both of them interchangeably as that little girl. Even Interlude Magazine, the music magazine Arlen launched back in the early 2000s, had a column in almost every issue, consisting of a verbatim transcript of Arlen and her mom. Mama. Also, Paris Hilton's dog... Arlen laughs. What about him? This is Shayna Brennian, Arlen's old roommate, reading the column. I heard a rumor, I don't know how true it is, that she's getting rid of this dog. Chihuahuas aren't the kinds of things that can survive on their own. So when you get tired of a chihuahua, where does it go? You can't just leave it out on the street because it's endangered. Arlen, I don't think that's the word for it. They're not endangered if there's too many of them. Mama, they're endangered of being killed. Arlen teased her mom, but she also loved to spoil her. Just before Mrs. Sims' surgery, Arlen had flown her to New York, bought her fifth-row seats for Hello, Dolly! on Broadway. And during Mrs. Sims' recovery, Arlen had set her up in a room overlooking downtown Houston. Arlen was staying right across the hall. I went to her room first. She's a very lovely woman. Don't, don't let me scare you. She's very sweet. She's also, she's going to be, like, sussing you out at first. I would do a lot of how-does-that-make-you-feel stuff rather than telling her how it makes her feel. Any other tips? <laughs> um, <laughs> Don't swear. <laughs> yeah, it's, this is for you. Like, you can swear, but then she, in the rest of her life, she will just um, have an opinion of you. And I just don't want that for you. Across the hall, Mrs. Sims was on a sofa watching TV. Come in. Hi. Hello. Hi, Mrs. Sims. I'm Amy. Very nice, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. I sat down next to her, and Arlen pulled up a chair to face us. All right, so here's the rules. At first, she'd said she'd just stay a second, but she sat there for an hour, scrolling through emails on her phone. I couldn't tell whether this was to keep an eye on me or to make sure her mom didn't say anything embarrassing. I pulled up a photo from the 1980s. Arlen, Alfred, and Mrs. Sims at one of those photo studio places. 
describe Arlen in this picture? What do you see when you look at her? Someone in charge. You see how she's holding the, uh, uh, my arm like she, you know, she's in charge. And Alfred's smiling because he loves the camera. And I'm just there and like, hmm. Arlen being in charge, this seemed to be a theme in Arlen's childhood. We reversed roles when she was seven. And it's been that way ever since, you know. What happened when she was seven? I think it was a belt in the store. And I went in the store and I was like being ignored. You know how sometimes if you go into a store, there's all everybody's all over you. But some stores, like maybe a Neiman Marcus or whatever, they're like, you shouldn't really be in here. Mrs. Sims wanted to see a belt and the saleswomen were ignoring her. Arlen wasn't having it. She goes, my mother wants to see those belts. So we, you, you know, so she started whatever. And so she's been doing it ever since. So I decided, well, that's a good way to get to see the belts. Let's try that with something else. So she does. So Arlen took over. She became an adult, sometimes the adult in her family. This meant worrying about money. Arlen worried about her mom's debt to payday lenders and pawn shops. She worried about the rent. When she was 16, she told me, she took a bunch of pills left over from a dental surgery her brother had had. She said she just wanted help for someone to see her. The school nurse sent her to a therapist. But when Arlen realized how much this would cost, she never went back. Arlen couldn't fix her family's poverty. That she couldn't control. But she could protect her mom from having to confront how much poverty affected their lives. In the hotel room that day, Mrs. Sims told me a story about a school called Hockaday, a prestigious all-girls private school in Dallas. She said when Arlen was a teenager, she'd been offered a scholarship at Hockaday, so the two of them went to visit. So we go to Hockaday, so we're going to visit Hockaday because they want her at Hockaday. And so we visited, and it was so nice. It was part uh, affiliated with the country club, and she'll go to all of the events. It was just the place to go. But then, on this tour of Hockaday... Arlen noticed something. They're all dressed alike. She's, they're wearing uniforms. And she says, I'm not going here. I'm not going to wear a uniform. And I said, you're not going to go? She said, I'm not wearing a uniform. And I said, okay. So she didn't go to Hockaday. I had heard this story before from Arlen, except when Arlen told it, she gave a totally different reason for not going to Hockaday. In Arlen's telling, as a teenager, she had made a very adult calculation. She knew that even with the scholarship, her family wouldn't be able to afford Hockaday, the supplies and the trips and the social events. Mrs. Sims didn't see that, but Arlen did. It was just, this is nice and all, but how are we going to afford this? And how are we going to afford the things that are outside of this? It was never an option to me. It just didn't seem like an option What's to me. What's it like for you to hear that now? Well, uh... In retrospect, I don't think she would have liked Hockaday. I don't think so. No, I would have burned that place to the ground. Yeah, Not literally, like but it would have been... Um, I don't think I would have done well at Hockaday. I think I'm going to picture you at a cotillion. <laughs> please, please don't try to do it. Arlen's senior year of high school was the hardest year her family had faced. Mrs. Sims was laid off from her job, and the family got evicted. For a while, they all shared a bed in a motel, but eventually they couldn't afford that either. So Arlen and Alfred dropped out of school, and the three of them went to stay with relatives in Mississippi. Arlen once told me that having money equals having control. Because when you're poor, like she and her mom and brother were, you have no control over your life. You can't control where you live or whether you can go to the doctor. 
and there's just no dignity in that. This idea of dignity and money, I didn't realize how central this was to Arlen until a story she told me about the time they were living in the motel, and Arlen didn't want anyone at school to know. So I was on the, the, in, the program at school where you got a free lunch. You know, this school, a lot of people were, were, had wealthy families at this school I went to. And one day in school, they made an announcement on the intercom. And it was like right before Thanksgiving. They gave this list. They said, the following people need to come to the auditorium. And my name is listed. They said, um, you've won... Um, You've won a Thanksgiving meal. And the reason that it makes me emotional is because of the dignity that they gave us. Because they didn't say you they didn't say that you need this and you're you can't afford it. They said that you won a contest. So we go to the auditorium and we each have a bag and it has all this food in it. And I can now take this back to my family. And um, I knew that nobody knew that we were secretly living like that. And so it just gave me a little extra hope. Speaking of food. When she told me this story, Arlen was in the studio at Gimlet and I was on the phone. This was the only time Arlen had ever cried with me. I think it caught both of us by surprise. She opened a snack bar that had been sitting on the table. Do you want to take a break and eat that? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll take a break and eat it. And can we, I know you want to talk about it a lot, but can we Can we not spend too much time on it? Sure, why not? It's a little bit like, you know, showing the videos of flies around kids in Africa when you don't show anything else. That's what it is, and I know you're not doing that. I know you're painting this very big different picture of me and I'm very proud of that and happy about that but in this moment it yes it feels like a a fetish thing every once in a while not just with you with with white people in general because they want to feel like they're they want to feel like they're helping someone and it's sometimes that's not how the real deal is you know like these are sad circumstances that I went through um but I'm not a sad person Later, it struck me. When Arlen decided to become a venture capitalist, she picked the ideal career to turn the tables on this whole dynamic of white person charity. As a VC, Arlen was the one giving out the money. And she was giving it to people who reminded her in some way of herself. Women, people of color, LGBT founders. Not as a handout, but so that they, too, could go out and get rich. That's what this whole thing was about making it so that not only the white guys got a shot at making a fortune in Silicon Valley. The day after my conversation with Mrs. Sims, Arlen and I caught a flight from Houston back to Oakland, where she had a day of meetings. And while we were waiting in a hotel lobby, Arlen casually informed me that she had just found a solution to the problem of her Q companies. An investor had just given her $250,000 for her fund. Backstage could finally make its investments. You just got a commitment of 250 grand from NLP. I did. So I have to respond to them and thank them and tell them, yes, we will take that offer. I'm sorry, I gotta say that it just like it sounds like there's a caveat at the end of there this really that you're isn't, not expressing. There really isn't. I just I'm so I'm so road weary. 
It's been three solid years of these ups and downs. It would be a good thing for me to take today, like sit with that and like acknowledge it. It's hard for me to do. Pretty soon, I found out who the investor was. The new mystery investor was the old mystery investor. It was Holly Laval who had swept through the office in Santa Monica a few weeks before. Holly was already by far the largest investor in Backstage. And now she was coming in with another quarter of a million dollars. This was exponentially more than any other investor. In February, producer Lauren Silverman took a trip to Portland, Oregon to visit Holly at home. Holly's house, it turned out, looked surprisingly normal for someone who had just made a $750,000 investment. Tiny lawn, a kid's scooter on the porch. The only signs of wealth were a Tesla in the driveway and a fancy doorbell. Hi, are you Holly? Holly told Lauren she didn't need much convincing to invest in Arlen. I invested based on the concept and speaking with her on the phone. So just a phone call? Yes. Yes. Had you ever done that before? Not to that extent, no. (laughs) Holly and her husband were already wealthy. He was a founder, and she'd been an employee at a company that had gone public. In recent years, the two of them had made big donations to local nonprofits around Portland, women's organizations. In other words, Holly was mostly a philanthropist, which made her different from the other investors Arlen had been courting. Arlen's pitch was that investing in Backstage was a way to make money. But Holly's primary interest wasn't really money at all. It was about helping underestimated founders. It's about supporting an idea and creating proof of concept. And I I know that this will succeed and will hopefully have that ripple effect where people realize that it's not as much of a risk to invest in women entrepreneurs as they think it might be. In the past, I think Arlen might have turned her nose up at this kind of investment. But her thinking on this had changed. She knew that on average, it takes a company seven to 10 years to start generating big returns for its investors. Holly had just bought Arlen some time. And even if the money hadn't come in yet, Arlen realized that backstage capital was generating returns, just a different kind. It is an impact when a Black woman comes up to me in a small town and tells me she started a company because she heard about Backstage Capital and she knows that in two years, we'll be there for her. That's impactful. Just a few short years ago, Arlen thought all you needed was hustle and a good nose for sniffing out companies. She had come to California on that promise, slept on the floor of the airport. But it turned out she needed something else too, time. And now she had a little more. Coming up, the final episode in our series. We meet the companies who have been waiting for months for an investment from Backstage Capital. And Arlen makes headlines. Is it okay if I, if I go rogue a little bit? Oh, rogue. <laughs> I, and Backstage Crew, I'm gonna go rogue a little bit too. I'm about to, I'm about to make an announcement that we, we hadn't planned on making. That's coming up next week. In June, Arlen and I will be speaking together at Gimlet Fest in Brooklyn. She'll be talking about what it was like to be followed around by the startup crew for so long and what she thinks of these stories. And some news. Shireen Marisol Miraji from NPR's podcast Code Switch will be moderating the conversation. 
Get your tickets at GimletFest.com. Also at Gimlet Fest, hosts from Heavyweight, The Nod, Habitat, and more. Check it out, GimletFest.com. Also, if you're liking this season and want to go deeper, sign up for Startup's newsletter. You'll get Q&As with backstage portfolio companies that you don't hear in the podcast and a look at Arlen's side hustles before she was a VC. Look for the link in the show notes or go to gimletmedia.com slash newsletter where you can sign up. Today's episode was produced by Bruce Wallace, Simone Polanin, Luke Malone, and Angelina Mosier. Our senior producer is Lauren Silverman. Editing by Annie Rose Strasser, Molly Messick, Lisa Chow, Heather Rogers, Lulu Miller, and Sarah Saracen. Peter Leonard mixed the episode. Special thanks to Lisa Soap and to Sunil Rajaraman, who has a podcast called This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley. I'm Amy Standen. Our theme song is by Mark Phillips, remixed by Bobby Lord. Build Buildings wrote and performed our special ad music. For full music credits, visit our website, gimletmedia.com slash startup. Find out more about the show at gimletmedia.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Podcast Startup. Thanks. We'll see you next week. Thanks.